Słowa everyone, słowa Bogom and welcome after a long break. It's been a while, hasn't it? I know some of you were worried and got in touch to check on me and I thank you so much for that. Um, it meant and continues meaning a lot. Thank you so, 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 so very much. So uh, it's been a while. I got tied up with work and personal commitments and um, it took much longer than I expected to get back on top of that. But it's under control now, thankfully, and we are back with searching for the Slavic soul. And I truly could not be happier to be here recording the next episode for you. So um, today, as the title of this episode's episode indicates, I want to talk about wars and conflicts between uh, and among Slavs. Uh, this topic is inspired by opinions expressed by many outspoken commentators who, while commenting on the Russian invasion on Ukraine, uh, lamented the war between Slavs and called out to, you know, live peacefully, like <laughs> apparently, or rather allegedly, our ancestors lived. Uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, reading such lamentations and appeals, I was scratching my head, uh, wondering when did our Slavic ancestors lived peacefully <laughs> and trying to figure out how can anyone think that uh, Putin's invasion on Ukraine can be resolved by following the example uh, given by our ancestors. Uh, obviously, they didn't. Our ancestors didn't live peacefully and it they, their example cannot really <laughs> be used to fix the modern problems. But, you know, uh, obviously to me, a person who knows history and Slavic culture, but apparently many modern Rodnovers or Slavophiles don't know that, which uh, is kind of sad, but hey-ho, this is what this podcast is for, to show Slavic culture and history and... Uh, as it is, and not as people who don't have a clue think it should be. So, uh, here we are today discussing Slavic wars, and they were many. Um, so, if any of these sounds even remotely interesting, keep listening. So, the wars of Slavs. Um, as I mentioned, I don't know how many times, the original pre-Christian and early medieval Slavs were tough people. They were hardy, stubborn, and as the Byzantine Emperor Maurice wrote in his Strategicon, Strategicon, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, they absolutely refused to be enslaved or governed. And... Uh, how do you refuse to be enslaved or governed? Well, you fight. <laughs> so our early medieval ancestors fought. They fought so much and with so many enemies that they kind of became legendary warriors in the early medieval times. They were so legendary, in fact, that defeating them in a battle or a war was considered almost impossible. And if one 
for example, a king of Ostrogoths, and Ostrogoths were Germanic people who lived in the time of Roman Empire, the proper, the original Roman Empire that existed in the antiquity, not the Holy Roman Empire, which came to be much later in the early medieval times. So anyway, Ostrogoths were Germanic people living in the area of Balkans. They were one of the branches of Goths, um, the original Goths, not the modern <laughs> sad and depressed Goths. Uh, the original ancient Goths, which were Visigoths and Ostrogoths, they were absolutely not depressed or sad. Um, quite the opposite they seem to have plenty of energy and you know will to live and fight so they lived in the area of balkans but not only there one of the kings of ostrogoths his name was ermanaric uh, built a whole empire reaching as far as the land of modern ukraine or perhaps even poland uh, by the way, Ermanaric was such a legend that he actually inspired a character in the Norse poetic Eddas, and uh, he was also mentioned by name in the Old English epic poem Beowulf. I hope I pronounce it properly. Still, I hope you, you know of which epic poem I am talking about. And uh, I really need to get back to the Ostrogoths, don't I? So, um, Ostrogoths were Germanic people living in the time of the First Roman Empire. They had a king called Ermanaric, who in turn had a brother, and this brother had a grandson, and this grandson was almost as legendary as his, like, grandfather once removed, I suppose. Um, so, as the brother of his grandfather, uh, but not quite, because he did not build the empire as the Ermanaric. Uh, still, you know, the, the grandson of the farmer, famous grandfather liked to fight and conquered too. So he thought he thought he will go fighting with the Slavs, who in these times, we are talking the end of the fourth century here, the, the fourth century of the common era, obviously, so, in the 4th century of the Common Era, Slavs living in the area of the Lower Danube River were called Antes, and in these times, Slavic tribes of Antes were friendly with the Huns, uh, the very same Huns who at some point were ruled by Attila the Hun, who, you know, I'm sure you know, invaded Europe and triggered the Great Migration and contributed to the fall of the Roman Empire, well, truth to be told, the fact that Slavs were friends with Hans is completely irrelevant. So, still, I think it's a very cool fact, so I'm mentioning it here because I can. But back to what I wanted to say originally, which is... Um, which is... Which is that the grandson of Ermanaric was called... Vitimir, and he had a nickname, Vitinar, which means the slayer of or the killer of Antes, so Slavs. So, what I wanted to say here, and, I'll, <laughs> and only after only a few digressions finally managed to say, is that Slavs were such legendary warriors that if someone actually managed to win a battle with them, which, the, uh, which Vitimir Vitinar did, 
it was considered such an amazing feat that it was used as a second name, a honorable, honorable title, so to speak. And such title of the Slayer of Slavs was actually sought after and, you know, respect inducing for hundreds of years, really. Um, for example, there was this crazy guy who was called Ferdulf of Friuli, <laughs> who, as Paul the Deacon wrote, uh, he desired the glory of victory over the Slavs. Uh, and in order to achieve that, he figured he will hire some Slavs to invade his country and then, you know, he will just chase them off, which is the best proof how insane this guy was, because Slavs, of course, after they were paid, they happily obliged to invite Friuli, but then um, they kind of didn't really feel like <laughs> losing a battle. So when Ferdulf started attacking them, they like literally obliterated his whole army. The cavalry, the infantry, you know, the commanders, it was all just decimated. Uh, there was not a wa warrior standing after Slavs were finished with them. Uh, so, um, yeah, our early medieval ancestors were fierce warriors. They really seemed to enjoy uh, going out there to kill some people and, you know, lay carnage in their way. Um, in Mori Strategicon, or Strategicon, I don't really know how to say it. They were presented, like, in Mori Strategicon, they were presented as fierce by disorganized warriors. But this point of view, I think it's very biased because the Byzantine Empire liked order and hierarchy and their chain of command. I mean, it was like super organized and strict culture, while Slavs were more, you know, loose and relaxed and I can't really say chilled out, but, you know, going with the flow, so to speak. So it could easily look chaotic and disorganized from a perspective of like a stiff, orderly and uh, always proper Byzantine Emperor Maurice. But if you look at the actual wars or battles of uh, where uh, battles where Slavs were fighting, there's simply no way they were disorganized and chaotic. Uh, firstly, uh, there were very popular mercenaries throughout all the early medieval period. Uh, pretty much if one wanted to go for a war in early medieval times in Europe, like getting some Slavs was like the standard operating procedure. I mean, Huns were doing it, Byzantium were doing it, Holy Roma, Roman Empire was doing it. Too. Flavius Belisarius himself, you know, the one that um, has books and operas wrote about him and the one that inspired the character in Warhammer 40k, the Belisarius himself was hiring squads of Slavs. Um, Procopius of Caesarea recorded that a Byzantine commander called Tullianus straight out requested a squad of Antes, so Slavs, to defend a narrow passage to Lucania from the invasion of Ostrogoths. And Tullianus requested Antes because he was certain that only Slavic Antes were capable to fight in the difficult terrain of uh, the passage to Lucania. And, um, you know, the, he, he was pretty bang on. The 300 of Slavic warriors who fought on foot 
they decimated the cavalry and infantry of Ostrogoths and defended the passage. Uh, on another occasion, or <laughs> rather occasions, <laughs> as this was going on for months, perhaps even a whole year, uh, the Chronicles called it hordes of barbaric Slavs, ran havoc and pillaged and plundered the Byzantine province of Thrace and Illyria. Uh, it's worth noting that these provinces were not some sort of outliers of Byzantium. Uh, they were established parts of the empire with um, garrisons manned with well-trained elite imperial soldiers. But uh, as history teaches us, these superbly trained and well-organized soldiers did not stand a chance <laughs> against 3,000 Slavs who uh, one day in the spring of 549 were bored and decided to cross the Danube River and then have some fun. I mean, I'm, I am a bit colorizing here because the 3,000 Slavs were gathered by a prince of East Germanic tribe of Gepids. Uh, this prince was called Hildigis, I think, Hildigis and he gathered the Slavic army to reclaim the throne of Gepids. Um, I'm not going to get into the story too much because I'm really, really determined to stay on the topic. So I'm just going to mention here that Hildigis, Hildiges, I don't know how to say it, the prince of Gepids ended up assassinated before he could actually use the army of Slavs. So, you know, the Slavs and we are talking here about uh, Slavic tribes called Sklaveni, not Antes anymore, but Sklaveni. So uh, Sklaveni warriors were promised a fight and that didn't happen. So they, you know, <laughs> took initiative and off they went to pillage Thrace and Illyria. And they ran the rampant over there. They destroyed every single elite garrison they came across. They pulverized the Byzantine forces, left the whole province, province undefended, and the few survivors of battles with Slav, the elite Byzantine soldiers, they just ran for their life, warning everyone on the way that, oh, you know, the end is near. So the chronicles even mentioned that Slavic forces were outnumbered by the Byzantine troops, yet Slavs just kept winning. In one place in Thrace, in a stronghold called Tzurulon, I hope I say it right, it's T-D-Z-U-R-U-L-O-N, Tzurulon, which uh, according to Procopius um, had numerous and elite force of cavalry stationed there for a long time. Uh, so Slavs not only defeated the elite cavalry, not only captured the stronghold, but they also literally wiped the place of the <laughs> face of the planet, like literally. After Slavs were done with this place, there was no trace left of it other than the mention in the Chronicle of Procopius. Oh, and by the way, the, the commander of the Tsurulun, I really don't, cannot say it, of this place, of this garrison. Uh, the name of this commander was Asbadon. Um, he was skinned alive and then Slavs threw him into a burning campfire. 
because contrary to what you might have read on the internet, Slavs were really not peaceful, loving or kind. Uh, neither they are still. Uh, they could and did not mind being cruel uh, if such need or fancy arose. Uh, during the ra raids, uh, the one that I'm just describing now, um, they, they not only killed the Byzantine military, but also murdered all the civilians, regardless of their age and gender. They impaled people, you know, like Vlad Palovnik, aka Count Dracula, some 900 years later, did in Transylva Transylvania. So they uh, they impaled people, they tied people up and beat them to death. Uh, they burned them alive. Uh, in Toperos, uh, Slavs murdered 25,000 men. And well, that was actually very kind of them because they saved women and children and enslaved them. And that, the whole murdering and enslaving, all that happened, of course, after defeating well-equipped, well-trained elite Byzantine forces. So what I am saying here in a very convoluted and full of side notes manner is that there's just no way, you know, Slavs might have looked barbarian and rude and crude and, you know, chaotic and peasant-like, but they were organized enough to put together and keep together for several months a military force capable to take on and destroy a superior and on top of it outnumbering them Byzantine army. Um, seeing what Slavs achieved in early medieval times, it just makes no sense, uh, you know, all the statements that our ancestors were unruly to the point of not being able to become a part of an army and follow a battle plan. And you see it in the chronicles, uh, you know, Slavs were standing to battles left, right and center, really. They were taking part in these battles. They were able to communicate with other warriors and commanders, regardless of this warrior and the warriors and commanders language, ethnicity or culture. They were able to cooperate, to follow a plan of a battle, to come up with a plan of a battle, to communicate over long distances stay on top of logistics and, you know, execute big operations. And you know where they figure out how to do all these things? When they were fighting each other. Because contrary to what some silly movies or novels might tell you, you simply cannot learn how to fight overnight or over the summer holiday. It's just not possible. Uh, fighting at a level that allows you to stand up to another skilled fighter and survive uh, is the type of skill that you can only acquire but by practicing it day by day uh, for years. And in order to do that, you need to live among people who allow you to do that, who let you have time for practice, who are able to support you and care for you when you get an injury which is something that you get <laughs> if you're learning how to fight and who last but not least know how to fight so you have someone to learn from. And the funny thing nowadays is that our culture, the Western culture, does not have a culture of fighting. And I don't even talk here about a physical combat fighting. I mean here fighting against difficulties and fighting for who you are. 
what you think and what you believe in. We are told that in order to achieve something, uh, one has got to have talent, which is totally not true. Um, I don't know if you know, my daughter likes to draw a lot. She's been drawing pretty much daily since she was seven years old or so. She spent hours trying to get one line right or following tutorials on how to draw this or that. Now she's 17, she draws and then she puts her drawings on Instagram So and people comment like, oh, it's so amazing, you're so talented. <laughs> That's it. In their mind is not the 10 years of practice, but it's the talent that did it. No effort required. Uh, same goes for anything else, really. If you fail at something or things don't go as you want it, people tell you and most probably you think it too. Oh, well, no biggie. It wasn't meant to be like, you know, some fate or destiny does things with zero input from yourself. Um, but the truth is that talent, fate or good luck are not enough. Never. Uh, if you want to be someone or achieve something, you have got to bloody fight for it. You've got to struggle, uh, get injured, fight people to help you get better. And when you recover, you've got to start fighting all over again. And it never stops, uh, nor should it really. It's healthy to fight. Uh, it's good for you to want something so much that you want to get up from your ass and just, you know, start fighting for it. Uh, but in our Western culture, we cherish the, you know, the stoicism of, or the approach of the East, the philosophies and life attitudes where the goal is to just stop wanting things, to, you know, accept and let go and withdraw from the world and cease existing. And I'm not saying that Buddhism or Stoicism are wrong or something. I, I mean, it's great to be a Buddhist monk or, I don't know, <laughs> Marcus Aurelius, the emperor of Rome and the founder of Stoicism. It's great to be this person that is looked after and cared for and worshipped by uh, others to the point where this person does not have to fight. Uh, it's awesome. And it would be great if we all could be such people, but we are not. <laughs> and our ancestors most certainly were not. Uh, if, um, if anything, majority of our ancestors were the people who did the providing and the looking after. Maybe not for the Buddhist monk or the emperor of Rome, but for someone else who considered himself um, or herself superior and who expected to be provided for. And if you are exploited like that, if you are expected to uh, provide for the, you know, enlightened, uh, you can only do two things. Um, you can give up, roll over and do as you're told, or you can fight. And the majority of Slavs in the history of Slavs just fought. They fought, they struggled, they practiced, and they kept getting better at fighting. Because this is who they were. The whole Slavic culture is the total opposite of the give up and let go trend of our modern Western attitudes. Uh, Slavic cultures is 
all about going out there and getting what you want and fighting for it. It's all about active, uh, practiced and honed skills of interactions with, you know, with humans, with the supernatural forces and the whole world. It's all about being active, not passive. Uh, all about going out there and getting what you want. And who you get it from, it's kind of secondary. <laughs> you might get it from Byzantium, from Hans, Avars, Germans, Holy Roman Empire, or from your Slavic neighbor, and that it's fine. This is why the history of Slavs is full of wars and fighting, also with each other. So, all the BS you might have read or he heard from these pseudo-Slavic pagans about, you know, that Slavs should not kill each other and should not spill brotherly blood, that's all total nonsense. That's uh, being said or written by people who don't have a clue. The, the fact that Russia invaded Ukraine is nothing surprising or unusual in the context of Slavic history or culture. This shit has been going down for centuries, you know. Antes fought with Sklaveni, Drevlanie fought with Polanie, uh, Kievan Rus fought with older Slavic neighbors, uh, all the tribes of Pol Polabian Slavs were at war with each other at this time or another. In the whole history of pre-Christian pagan Slavs, only a handful of times Slavs <laughs> successfully managed to unite above the level of a tribe and build a state-like political organization. Uh, in the 7th century, there was uh, Karantania and Samos state. In the 9th century, there was Great Moravia, uh, but it was pagan only for a very short period of time. Um, it got Christianized very quickly, so I'm not actually sure if it counts. And of course, there was the Kievan Rus, which for the first like 100 years uh, was pagan, but then at the end of the 10th century, um, it got Christianized. And that's it. No, wait. There was also the Veleti Confederation, which existed in the 10th and 11th century. Uh, it was a loose confederation of a dozen or so of Polabian Slavic tribes. I'm not sure um, if Veleti Confederation qualifies as a state, though, because the tribes making up the confederation, they fought with each other. <laughs> most of the time and united only when really, really absolutely necessary. Uh, to give you an example, in uh, 1056, 1056 uh, uh, the united forces of the Veleti Confederation uh, managed to stop the invi invading German army in the battle at Przeczława which uh, was a great success of the Slavs, but unfortunately Nothing really came out of it, as very shortly after the victorious battle, the Slavic tribes of the Confederation started to argue and fight again, and by the next year, the Confederation effectively ceased to exist. So, we, the Slavs, we were always fighting each other and spilling each other's blood, and the fact that we are all members of one ethno-linguistic and cult cultural group is actually the very thing that makes us fight. It's in our culture 
it's in our blood and the only person who could think otherwise is some sort of self-righteous half-brain who thinks that having a keyboard and internet connection gives them right to tell others how to live. Um, you know, it's like our old friend colonialism all over again. You know, when the Europeans were traveling to the primitive countries to help them to become civilized and cultured. And in their blindness, these Europeans could not even tell apart the Piscataway and the Nakonchang people, uh, let alone understand the nuances of their culture. It was all the same for them, for these uh, Europeans, like Slavs are all the same for these dumb Westerners who think they are so important that they can tell the Slavs how to be Slavs. It's just stupid, stupid people. Uh, but anyway, back to spilling brotherly blood. Uh, yes, our ancestors did it a lot. Uh, most of the time they did it willingly but sometimes they were made to do it. Uh, such situation happened in August of 955 on Lechfeld Plains. Uh, those of you who are familiar with history know that this was one of the biggest and most important battles in the early medieval Europe. You also know it was a battle between Hungarians and the forces of a German king Otto I uh, who by the way, later became the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, what you might not know, however, is that Slavs were fighting in this battle too, on both sides. Uh, the Slavs on the Hungarian side were Slavic tribes who centuries before settled in the Pannonian Basin. Uh, the land of these Slavic tribes was conquered by the Harga Hungarians in the 9th and 10th century, and then the Pannonian Slavs were incorporated into the Hungarian army also to stand up on the Lechfeld Plains. Uh, these Slavs were made to fight by literally whipping them into submission. The chronicles who documented the siege of Augsburg, which was the interlude to the actual battle on the Lechfeld Plains, uh, they documented that Hungarian cavalry forced Slavic infantry to attack by hitting the Slavs with whips. Uh, the Slavs on the German side were Polabian Slavs, specifically Sorbs, who were incorporated into the German war machine after the fall of the West Slavic state of Great Moravia. Uh, the incorporation happened by the way of introduction of feudalism and particularly the fief system where the conquered land was given to a vassal or a liege lord in exchange for paying regular tributes to the overlord and uh, showing up with the military forces when called upon was part of this tribute. So basically what Otto I did before going up against the Hungarians uh, was to call on his liege lords to send over a certain number of forces to be utilized in the war. So basically the Slavs that were fighting on the side of the Germans were presented with a choice. You either get your weapons and go on a war or we will come on the land that you're living on, which, living on, which, by the way, <laughs> is not yours, even though your tribe has been living there for centuries. This land 
that you live on is not yours, but it belongs to Otto the First, uh, because Otto the First says so. So, if you don't go fighting for Otto, we will come to the land that is not yours anymore, and we will get rid of you and your family from this land. And that was actually legal back then. Well, that was legal until the 15th or 16th century, mostly because in the 14th century, Black Plague killed so many people that the, by the 15th century, there wasn't enough people in Europe for the liege lord to exploit. But that is a different story. So let me just tell you this. Nowadays, we take so many things for granted is not even funny. I mean, the protection of human rights and the international rights and the whole doctrine of the legal st state, known also as the rule of law, all of this gives us, the regular people, so many protections, so much safety. It would have been unimaginable in the times of our ancestors. There is a very good reason why the modern Western culture is all about acceptance and withdrawal and giving in or giving up. We are so well protected by the system created by previous generations that we don't even know what it means to have a hard life. No one comes to take our land or to kill us or to enslave us. No one skins us alive or uses whips to drive, us, to drive us to battle. We've got no one to fear. We have no uncertain future to prepare for. So it's no wonder we don't really want to interact with the world because it's all boring. So we look for inspiration in some far land like Japan or Tibet. And we tell ourselves that these cultures are so amazingly deep that they for sure will cure us from our boredom or at least help us to stop experiencing it. And in our lack of knowledge and understanding, we totally fail to see that a lot of people, innocent and hardworking people, a lot of people had to be enslaved and put to work in order for samurais and Buddhist monks to exist. We also fail to see that what we have, the peace, the stability, the safety, it was won and built for us by the generation, by generation of people who truly suffered to build a better world for their children. And this is when we get to the point where these social media calls for peace really start to look stupid and shallow. All these, you know, why can we just stop fighting tweets and no more wars slogans put on Facebook or Instagram in the context of Russian invasion on Ukra Ukraine. I mean, these questions and slogans, they completely miss the point because you know what's going to happen when we stop fighting. Russia will come and take what it wants. Russia is what happens when we stop fighting because people are not nice and lovely by nature. People are greedy and power hungry and they want the nicest possible life with as little effort as only possible. 
And the easiest way to get such life is to get other people to work for you. And in order to stop others exploiting you and enslaving you, you have got to fight. The, the good things, the truly valuable things like safety, security, freedom and stable future, these things are not easy to get. You don't get them by meditating or praying. In order to get them, you have got to get up and fight for it. There's no other way. And this is why Ukraine is fighting. And this is why it will not stop fighting. Because that's the only way to survive. And this is why Poland is helping Ukraine so much. Because we understand. We've been in Ukraine position before. We were invaded countless of times and we know, because children in Polish schools are still taught history, we know that the only way to survive is to make sure your children are safe and then go fighting. And by the way, Russia will also not stop fighting either. It will not stop expanding and invading other countries because the people who rule Russia they simply don't know and don't want to know that there is another way. As far as the political system go, Russia has not moved very far since the medieval times. I mean, there's never been democracy in Russia. There might have been elections and there might have been some parliamentary bodies like Duma resembling a democratic, democratic representation, but it's all make-believe. The only Russian head of state that has ever been democratically elected was Boris Yeltsin, and there was some doubts about how fair his election was. Other than that, it's all made-up democracy. People of Russia don't get any say in how they want to live and who they want to be ruled by. They like these Slavs fighting on Lechfeld plains. They, they don't have any choice. They have to fight for whatever the boss Putin will tell them to fight. And this is heartbreaking. This whole thing is just heartbreaking. You know how this, there are these memes on social media that, you know, the best things are free? Like the, there is this pretty sunrise in the background. This person is holding a mug of coffee and the caption says, the best things in life are for free. Well, that is such a BS, it makes my teeth hurt, you know? Why this person, you know why this person is able to enjoy the sunset? Because no one killed them. Because they were born and lived through childhood, because they were vaccinated and they had access to high standard medical care. And you know why all of this could happen? Because our grand and grand grandparents fought for the peace we are enjoying now. I'm sure all of you saw captions from the Ukrainian hospitals. This is how healthcare looks during wartime. During wartime, there is so much smoke in the air, you cannot really see a sunrise. 
And even if you can see it, you cannot enjoy it with a mug of coffee because you've got to sit in a shelter trying not to be killed. The best things in your life have to be fought for. They are too valuable to be free. It might seem to you like they are for free, but rest assured, they are not. Someone had won these things for you. Someone had paid for it with their life. Have at least some respect and stop pretending it's all the doing of your bloody meditation classes. And that is all I've got to say for today. As always, I managed to call a few people stupid. and I'm not even sorry, to be honest. Um, let's just remember who we are and where we come from. And let's remember who other people are and where they come from. And if you don't know shit about other people, their culture and their history, just stop having an opinion about them because you're only going to say stupid things and nothing good will come out of it. Um, as always, if you have any comments, uh, feedback or anything else to say really about any of the above, uh, get in touch via Vitya's Facebook, uh, Instagram, YouTube channel, website or via email. Uh, we always appreciate anything you've got to say to us. I hope to see you again soon and uh, until then, Take care of yourself, keep fighting, and keep standing up for yourself and for others. And uh, Sława! Sława Ukraini! <laughs>